You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunnett. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today, it's everybody's friend, Ben Folks. Ben, you're fresh back from Las Vegas, where the world stopped a-turning. Uh, how are you doing? How are you, uh, how you, how you coping with all this, this stuff? I know some people are having a tough time with it. Yeah, it was, it requires some adjustment. I mean, uh, sitting there and watching it, I, I gotta say... There was a moment where even when Anderson Silva went down off a punch where I started to think, man, he is really committed to this just fooling around stuff. Yeah, no, Look. I saw that. It looked like when you watch the knockout on slow motion, uh, his face, he's still making the same face like, oh, what a lark until he, <laughs> until he hits the ground and then Chris Weidman knocks him unconscious with a punch on the ground. You know, and the thing is, I couldn't decide if that's because he does a really good impression of a wounded fighter. I mean, when he does the wobbly legs and everything, like, he really commits to it. And you got to admit, like, that's a good impression that he does. It's all fun and games till someone gets knocked out doing the stanky leg. Yeah. One of our listeners emailed us to say this week as part of the, I think, uh, one million emails we got about <laughs> Chris Weidman versus Anderson Silva. Um, and obviously, that will probably take up the bulk of the show today discussing that that fight and its ramifications. Yeah, so if you send us a listener mail question about that, I mean, I guess thanks for your input, but well, we don't want to, you know, I don't want to do any spoilers, you know, until we get to this. Okay. Yeah, who knows what what we'll be reading? Uh, but Ben, before we go any further, I think we would be remiss if we did not remind everyone that time is running out in the co-main event music contest. I believe uh, prospective entrants have one week to get their entries in. We've already got a bunch of good ones, uh, but I would like to get a full array from people out there who are, are promising to enter. I think, what did we say? People have to get their entries in by uh, next Tuesday at, uh, at noon in the one true time zone, the Mountain Daylight time zone. Uh, and uh, then, then we'll determine a, a, a method for picking the winner, I guess, yeah. after that. I don't and know if we're just going to pick or we, maybe we should pick finalists and let people vote. Yeah, that's a, that sounds fair. And prizes include uh, a humongous set of UFC DVDs still in its original packaging. Uh, Invicta has said it's going to send us some some signed gear uh, for you guys. Wait, signed gear? Well, I think signed poster. like poster. Oh. Yeah. Well, gear would be different and like maybe we could get some gloves or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, a poster will be much uh, less expensive to send through the mail. So yeah, I also that's good. The UFC put together some kind of really expensive-looking program for UFC 162, um, and I got one of those. My only concern about sending it out as a prize is that it feels pretty heavy. Really? Yeah, well, yeah. We we're on a budget. We're balling on a budget over here. So. Yeah. So maybe if somebody in Missoula wins, where I can just drive <laughs> just to your house and drop it off, yeah. that'd be great. Ben, this week's music comes to us from podcast listener Matthew Craig and his band Minus Music. And people who like them can get their EP for free, actually, at uh, Sound- SoundCloud.com/slash/minusmusic. I don't support that. The the giving it away for free. No, no, you wouldn't. You're you it's antithetical slime. to my values. 
Anyway, this week, the co-main event podcast, as usual, comes to you in three rounds. And round number one, I know we're all still processing our grief and everything, but it seems a little fishy for us to all suddenly start acting like we've never seen Anderson Silva fight before. And coming up in round two, we have a special announcement regarding welterweight champion George St. Pierre. Or wait, no, we don't. What's the use anyway? We would just have to reschedule it after the next ridiculous upset. And in round number three, has the long, slow decline of the crippler finally reached its endgame phase? Or we have we not yet begun to get uncomfortable? All that plus Master Tweet Theater. Are you fucking kidding me? And just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Max DeFries, who writes, I was looking at some Invicta promo stuff, and I thought of something that I wanted to ask your opinion on. Cyborg is fighting Marluce Kunin for the second time, and though I'm rooting for Marluce, who is my MMA coach in Amsterdam, Cyborg is a monster. Where to drop that, by the way. My MMA coach in Amsterdam. Something just landed on my foot. I think it was a name. Uh, Cyborg is a monster, and it's going to be a rough night, whatever happens. The thing is that this is the second fight, and we're supposed to see a quote-unquote clean Cyborg now. I'm sure Invicta will test the crap out of her, so I I believe it when Cyborg is okayed. The actual point is, is this the ultimate way for a tainted fighter to set the record straight? If Cyborg were to beat Kunin looking good doing it and gets an okay from the urine-tasting monkey... Oh, that's gross. Yeah. I hope that's not really how they do it. Like sending a dove down into a mine to see if it dies. <laughs> that's kind of awesome, though. And But, I mean, it's, it's a shitty job for the monkey. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, it, it, and gets an okay from the urine-tasting monkey. Doesn't that kind of redeem her in part? I'm very anti-steroids, but in part I would like, I guess I would feel like, I guess she was pretty good all along. What do you guys think? Well, I don't think there's any disagreement that cyborg is pretty good all along but as far as will one win followed by a clean steroid test uh vindicator i say no i think that uh, that's the problem with uh being a a caught and verified uh steroid user in mma or in sports in general is that then we kind of look back at everything you did and and question it and then going forward how do we know you just haven't gotten better at beating the test yeah. And the and when you're a fighter like Cyborg, just because of her physical appearance, the sad truth is once you test positive one time, you're probably going to be dogged by steroid uh, accusations for the rest of your career because God knows she was before she even tested positive. So, that you know, for fighters, unfortunately, that look like her, that's the kind of thing that's probably going to dog her for the rest of her career. And I mean, when I say unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately for her, uh, you know, not not uh, she I think she she probably deserves it if if that hangs around as a cloud out over her career for a while because she did test positive. So it was, uh, you know, proved that she was cheating in some kind of way. So, well, and on the flip side though, if she loses this fight, if Marlos Kunin beats her, and Marlos uh, Kunin ain't no joke, she ain't no joke. I don't think she'll beat cyborg. I mean, she's not really even a 145 pounder. She should be fighting at 135. Uh, and you know, she just doesn't seem like she has the, the skill set to really threaten cyborg, but Hey, it could happen. Uh, and if it does happen, then it looks way worse for Cyborg because then we just say, well, the only reason you won that first fight is because you're all juiced up and the urine-tasting monkey didn't catch you. Yeah, that makes it seem way more subjective. Like maybe if the urine-tasting monkey is just having a bad day. Yeah, like he if he's hungover. Miss, he might, yes. Urine-tasting monkey comes in hungover. He's up late with Joe Rogan the night before. And- <laughs> 
he misses he misses one, you know. Or if he gets to your sample last and he's already tasted a bunch of urine that it's day just and full it, of urine, it already ta- it all tastes the same to him. Anyway, the second piece of listener mail this week comes from Adam DeLong. He writes, I would like to offer a thought on your fighter pay discussion from last week. I haven't heard anyone offer any real solutions to the problem. Well, I think I've got something. I agree that fighters can't really live on 8,000 and 8,000 fight purses, but I'm also aware that nobody buys pay-per-views to see the guys that are making that kind of money. I do think a UFC fighter deserves to be able to live off fighting in the UFC, though, so why not pay them base salary of $30,000 per year for all the work they do to to promote the UFC while there? Then their fight purse can be on top of that. Then they've got endorsements, hopefully, and discretionary bonuses on top of that. I think that that would help tremendously in helping these guys be true pros while in the UFC. I've taken the liberty of doing a bit of math. Thank you for that, by the way, because God knows we weren't going to do it. Hell no. And based on 400 fighters and $30,000 each per year, that comes to about $12 per year. I'm pretty sure that the gate at pay-per-views alone could cover that annual cost. If they really want to pinch pennies, they could make main event fighters ineligible for the salary. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject. Now, see, we we did talk about fighters pay last week, and we, we touched a little bit on the Nate Quarry interview that I think he did with Bloody Elbow last week. Uh, and we didn't really talk about it that much, but he actually offered up this idea, which is not too far away from what Adam DeLong is saying. Although instead of a $30,000 per year base salary, which I think is a great idea, uh, although I don't know that the people who control the sport would agree with that, uh, Quarry's idea was that the UFC's essentially that their uh, – uh, league minimum is $30,000 a year so that when guys sign an initial UFC contract, it would be a one year long, no cut contract where they're guaranteed three fights for $10,000 a piece. And, uh, if you win and you get that doubled, then obviously if you win all three fights, you could make 60 grand a year. But even if you lose, you're still going to make 30, uh, which would be enough as long as you, uh, what did Dana White say that he wanted fighters to be cheap ass motherfuckers this weekend? He said yes. something like that. If you're a cheap ass motherfucker, you could get by on that, which is another thing that I think is a pretty good idea. Cause at least it would mean that, you know, guys who are fighting on the, on the bottom of the card wouldn't have to have other jobs, which I think is one of the big, uh, rubs and all of this. One of the things that makes you feel like something is really wrong. Although I'm going to come out and say $30,000 a year still sounds like not enough to me. But that's just me. Well, here, okay, one thing is, and I feel like we are too easily say, oh, we don't want to see guys cut that often. We want to get these guys a, a no-cut contract, which sounds really good to us. One of the things that I learned from, you know, talking to some UFC employees and the UFC matchmakers is that from, from their perspective, the tough part is, yeah, I mean, they don't enjoy cutting people obviously but if you don't cut people you can't hire new people just because you can only have so many people on the roster if you're going to give them enough fights um so that you're not in breach of contract because you have to give them so many fights within a certain period of time so if you're not able if you don't have enough events or enough fights on on the fight cards to offer them those fights uh you could run up into a breach of contract problem. So if you say, hey, sign all these guys to one-year no-cut deals, you're also kind of saying, and then you have to wait until some of those are up before you can sign anybody new, which sucks for the guys trying to get in. So we have to consider it from that angle. The thing about the fighter pay thing that that I think we're seeing like right now is, for instance, before this event, you see Tim Kennedy complaining about it, and he catches a world of shit. Um, to where if he had lost that fight, the UFC probably cuts him because they were not happy with him. 
uh, you know, they, they said as much to him before the fight. Uh, we heard about it in the media a bunch when, you know, Dana White definitely doesn't want to hear gripes about fighter pay. We've learned that. Um, but then after this fight, we see like Chris Weidman's disclosed payout of $48,000 for beating Anderson Silva. And immediately everybody is like, wow, that's not a lot of money, but hey, don't worry. Chris Weidman got a bunch more money than that, which I'm sure he did get more than $48,000 and even more than the 50,000 fight of the night bonus. But what if he didn't? Or what if he did get a little more, but not as much as you would guess that that was worth? What is he supposed to do? Complain about it? We've already seen that that doesn't go well. Like he knows he can't complain about it, especially not if he's trying to get a new deal and he's the new champion and all that. He doesn't want to be put in that situation. So when people are just like, Hey, don't worry about it, man. He's getting plenty of money. Like, and they never say how much it, that's the exact problem. I think that the UFC has with the fighter pay thing now is that there's just not enough transparency. So it keeps us so that we don't really know what we're talking about. It keeps the fighters scared of speaking out about it. Uh, and so it's hard to really know, you know, where it should go from here. Yeah. Um, and even if Chris Weidman got a ton more money than his reported $48,000 salary, how much would he have to get for you think it's fair? A bazillion. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it's, I just wanted to say that it's, it's still a very weird situation to be in, in a sport. If the place that we're at is for, is when people say, Oh, don't worry, man. He got paid a bunch more money in secret. Yeah. Like, how weird is that? We're talking about a professional sport and like our default setting, the place that we begin the conversation is, oh man, don't worry. Somebody took care of him at some point. Yeah. And that's, and, and you know, I've talked to a bunch of different fighters and agents and stuff over the years and they'll say, you know, hey, sometimes the UFC just sends you a check and you're like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Other times you're expecting it and you don't get it. And other times you're expecting it and you do get a check and you're like, huh, I thought that would be for a lot more. Uh, so, you just don't know, and it keeps those guys in this uncertain situation. And it's like with Chris Weidman, what if they said to him, "Hey, yeah, you know, your contract only called for forty-eight grand, and you got fifty grand extra for the the fight the night or the knockout of the night bonus?" Which, by the way, I would argue he earned. It's not uh, the gift that the UFC seems to think it is, uh, out of the kindness of the UFC's fucking heart. I mean, I think those guys are going out there and earning that. Right, the bonus, you mean? Yes, not the knockout. Yeah, some people <laughs> yeah. are saying that about the knockout. Um. But even if we found out that the UFC then cut Chris Weidman a check for an extra hundred grand, I mean, that's still not a bunch of money for going out there and knocking out Anderson Silva, uh, doing, which does this huge pay-per-view numbers, makes the UFC, you know, a ton of money. I mean, that's the problem when it, when you can couch it as, Hey, this is just extra money that we're giving you. Then it creates a situation where, you know, how can the fighter really complain about it? Because, Hey, we just gave him some money. Right. And more realistically, with the UFC, it would be like maybe they gave him a car. Yeah. And they gave him a Humvee or something <laughs> that he, then he has to put on eBay and sell. Hopefully not um, a motorcycle. The, yeah. <laughs> the bottom line, I think, about this fighter stuff is that we're – fighter pay stuff is that we're never going to know for sure until we know – the yearly revenue of the UFC and right. what percentage of that they pay out exactly. to fighters in total. Because in in sports where they have unions like uh, Major League Baseball, they have a, a really strong uh, players union, probably the strongest in professional sports. I think those guys get 52% of uh, Major League Baseball's annual revenue. And, and in basketball and football, it's something really close to that. It's between like 48 and 50. And and like if we found out that the UFC is, is giving 50% of its annual revenue to fighters in, in, in fighter pay, then I would probably be okay with that. But you know what? 
I don't think it is. No. And you know, Dana White said that uh, when it comes to financial comparisons, that they instead of comparing them to the NFL, that they should be compared more to Major League Soccer, which then people revealed Major League Soccer's uh, money is out there publicly. Uh, and you can see what Major League Soccer players are making and what percentage of the league's revenue Major League Soccer players are getting. And it seems like you know, some of the money that they're making is comparable. You know, I think their minimum salary is like 35 grand in Major League Soccer. Um, but they do seem to be getting a larger share of the league revenue. And I think that's the thing with the UFC. I mean, hey, if you tell me that the UFC is actually not making as much money as we think, and then 48 grand for a title fight starts to seem more reasonable, okay. But if you tell me that that's, you know, it's like 10% of league revenue, then I'm going to start to think, you know, that's the the question that really matters is whether or not you're giving these guys a fair share because they're the ones making this possible. I mean, the UFC, just like Tim Kennedy wanted to bring up nutrition, uh, a.k.a. food, in his cost, the UFC then wants to bring up, well, hey, look at all these guys we have to pay in these offices all over the place. Yeah, but if you don't have fighters who can go out there and fight for you, you don't need all those offices. You know, the fighters are the ones make this stuff possible. You, you got to take care of them. Yeah, and, you know, if the UFC really is taking care of guys – to the best of its ability and, and and taking care of guys really admirably, then it would only be in the UFC's best interest to release that financial information. Right. So, and it's not doing that. So you got to think it's not doing it for a reason. Uh, let's, we got to do these last two, which are related. Uh, they came in actually back to back and they're, they're, they're both on the same topic. So I assume that they're both secretly written by the same dude. So let's just, let's read them both and then we'll talk. Uh, about He'll just be bit. sitting at home laughing, just <laughs> laughing how he put one over on The us. first one's from Yusuf Bittner who writes, uh, nationalism in MMA is an issue that I've, that's been bothering me for a while. I see MMA as a sport of individuals, and in my eyes, that's a good thing. It seems to me that we should be rooting for fighters or against them because of how we feel toward them, not because of random happenstance of nationality. After UFC 162, Tim Kennedy tweeted that, quote, America won tonight end quote, which seems to border on outright jingoism. Some Brazilian crowds are, in my mind, among the worst in the sport. Almost every UFC event from Brazil I've seen uh, contained every non-Brazilian fighter being booed, even when they gave a great performance and were respectful toward their opponent and the nation of Brazil. What place, if any, should nationality have in MMA? Is there anything we can do to eliminate bigotry of the kind that still exists in our beloved sport? What's up with that? Discuss. So he went double whammy there yeah. at the end. And then Ben Hofstetter, Ben Hofstetter wrote in Clearly an alias. right after that to write at UFC 162 hubris revenge. Hubris's Revenge, which is a sweet tagline for UFC 162. The UFC handed out Brazilian and American flag towels to all the fans in attendance. This seems odd. Isn't the point of MMA that you can support an individual no matter what his or her national nationality? Were all of us Americans required to support Chris Weidman even if we love watching Anderson Silva fight? Also, do we need something else to remind these idiots to chant USA, USA? Uh, first, to the answer uh, or to the question, uh, isn't this the point of MMA? No, the point of MMA is not to show that people of all nationalities can walk hand in hand and just brothers and sisters. Uh, the point of MMA is, uh, you know, to find out who's the best fighter. But what about I, when Genki Sudo busts out that we are all one flag? Isn't that him that does that? Yeah. Did that? Yeah. Yeah, you disagree with Genki Sudo? No, I mean, hey, I, we're, we're, I I do agree that the 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 point made that hey, you know, nationality is an accident of birth, basically. I also though understand why some people, hey, if you don't know that much about either fighter and uh, 
you know, one of them is from your hometown and the other is from uh, somewhere on the opposite side of the globe. I can understand how people are like, all right, well, I'll just go with my hometown guy. And MMA, I think, doesn't give you that option the same way that, like, you know, team sports do. Like with the NFL, where you're like, well, you know, I grew up in Cincinnati, so... I guess I got to have my heart broken by the Bengals every year, and that's just my lot in life. And with MMA, you know, it's a guy can be from somewhere, train somewhere else, then switch gyms and back and forth. So you don't really get that. Um, I guess I understand why people seize on the nationality thing. Um, I did think it's it's a little weird sometimes the extent to which promoters are willing to push it. Yeah, I understand where the emailers are coming from, but to me, the nationality thing just seems like it's kind of all in good fun. I don't think that anybody. I mean, except maybe in Brazil. Except I, the Brazilians. I, I, I don't think that, that, that... I think we're saying we're all one except for the Brazilians. Right. They crazy. <laughs> I think by and large, like, I don't think it causes that much trouble. I did think it was a little weird that the USC printed out those towels, and I don't... I don't even recall seeing them on the broadcast either. Maybe they were, maybe they were, I, I wasn't paying attention. I saw them that, at the event. So. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern, uh, in the future, you know how to get a hold of the podcast. Go to our website, comainevent.com and, and click the link in the top right hand corner of the page that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Anyway, we're going to go ahead right now and roll directly into round number one. Well, Ben, there are about a million different ways I think we could go with a discussion of Chris Weidman's win over Anderson Silva this weekend. So to begin with, I'm just going to tell you what I see as the story of the fight and then the thing that infuriates me most about what has happened in the wake of the fight, and then I'll turn it over to you to get your take. Uh, I don't think that the story of this fight is particularly complicated, though I haven't heard a tremendous number of people say it in these words anyway. Um, and what I see as the story of the fight is this. Anderson Silva came in with a strategy. He came in with a game plan. He tried to implement it. It didn't work. It backfired. He got knocked out and he lost. And that, you know, I don't think that what transpired in this fight in that way is tremendously different from what transpires in any other normal fight. Now, you could say that you think that he that Anderson Silva had a high risk strategy or, or you, perhaps an asshole strategy. You can say that he had a bad game plan. And I think all of that is completely legitimate. But the truth is that it's a game plan that ha he has used to great success and frankly, great public adoration in the past. And so uh, the truth to me is that Chris Weidman essentially beat Anderson Silva sort of at his own game. And if you will, he foiled this game plan in a way that nobody else in Anderson Silva's UFC career has been able to foil it. So the thing that infuriated me and continues to uh, this week in the wake of this fight is when people have gone so far to try to dismiss or undermine Chris Weidman's accomplishment by saying stuff like, oh, Anderson Silva beat himself in this fight, or oh, this was a fluke, or oh, this was Anderson Silva's own hubris de that defeated him. I mean, to an extent, I can go along with, with part of that, but the truth is, no, it wasn't. 
it was Chris Weidman doing a thing that no middleweight and several light heavyweights have been unable to do for the past seven years. So it really bothered me that that there was so much a public uh, this sort of like wave of of trying to undermine. Chris Weidman's win. Okay, but if you're saying that you find the criticism that Anderson Silva uh, beat himself or at least aided in his own destruction a lot to be, uh, you know, infuriating, that he was just following a game plan, but didn't his game plan seem to rely on? Well, for one thing, I'll just be so much better than the dude that I can kind of fuck with him until he gets mad and allows me to knock him out. I mean, that's hubris. That's an arrogant yeah. game plan. You gotta, you gotta be a kind of an arrogant dude to think that you can get away with that. So isn't that like, in, if he goes out there with that game plan and it doesn't work, isn't that kind of then a failure due to hubris? Yeah, no, it is. And, and like I said, it was a high risk game plan, but it's also a game plan that he has used really successfully in the past and especially in the recent past. And I think if you want to talk about what the one failing that Anderson Silva brought with him to this fight, I think it was he made the mistake of thinking that Chris Weidman was one of these clowns that he's been fighting recently. I think that he made the mistake of thinking that Chris Weidman was Stefan Bonner for lack of a, of a better comparison, you know, and he thought that he could go out there and, and do this rope a dope thing that he does, which I agree with you is arrogant Although an arrogant thing he's gotten away with time and time again yeah. if in the past and a thing that when he does it and it works, everybody's like, dude, awesome. And then when it doesn't, they're like, oh, man, you just can't mess around in the cage, man. Did you when you do that, <laughs> you're going to get knocked out. Like, uh, I guess yeah, never mind. I don't even want to talk about that because that's another thing that infuriates me. Uh, and, you know, you can't do that against Chris Weidman. He's just better than that. He's the best dude Anderson Silva has fought in a while. And, and Anderson Silva came out and tried to work this game plan which is a strategy, by the way, because Anderson Silva is one of the sport's most devastating counterpunchers, maybe the most devastating counterpuncher we've ever seen in MMA. So clearly when he does that uh, rope-a-dope thing, he's not doing it for no reason. He's trying to get the dude to attack him with a wild, sloppy, Forrest Griffin-style attack that then he can do some video game shit around and then knock out with like a fadeaway left hand that he barely puts any power into and the other dude crumples up like a like a baby armadillo. Uh, but the truth is, you just can't do that against a dude that's as good as Chris Weidman, and I don't think Anderson Silva knew that until he was unconscious. Yeah, I think that you're right about that. I also think that... Uh I th you could probably pull off the uh, getting the guy to attack strategy without closing your eyes and making your legs go wobbly. Uh, that's probably unnecessary. The thing that I have to admit, when I was watching it live, um, and then when I got home and I watched the the my my wife DVR'd it, and so I got to watch it, you know, with the commentary and watch it from a different angle and stuff again. The thing that struck me the second time that maybe I didn't fully appreciate the first time watching it um, was how little Anderson Silva actually did to Chris Weidman in that fight. It seemed entertaining and stuff at the time, and it seemed like he was starting to give off the impression that, hey, you know, he can kind of do what he wants. But then when you, I, I, I watched it again, and I felt like he got, he managed to give you that impression that he could do what he wants, but he never actually did that much to hurt Chris Weidman in that fight at all. Yeah, he landed a couple of pretty uh, stiff leg kicks there in the first round, but I mean, Weidman took him down pretty pretty easily in the first round, and and, and you know probably ends up controlling that first round even more dominantly if he does not make Matt Hughes roll over in his grave. Uh, Matt Hughes is dead, right? He passed away. Yeah, <laughs> he's dead in spirit. Okay. He's dead yeah. inside. If yeah. he doesn't, you know, make Matt Hughes roll over in his grave by trying to to drop down for that 
completely ill-advised knee bar turned into a heel hook thing that he did. Well, uh, hey, that's how Rio Chonin got him with a heel hook, I man. Guess, Come I on. That's true. Maybe, that, maybe that's from film study. Maybe Chris Weidman decided to do that from film study. I mean, I feel like all of the people that, that, that want to dismiss Weidman's win as a fluke, I, I always feel like asking them, like, well, if Chris Weidman had lost this fight, would you consider that a fluke because he rolled for that terrible knee bar instead of just maintaining top position and like either finishing Anderson Silva in the first round or, or tucking that round away as, as an easy 10, nine for him. No, you wouldn't say that. You're just saying it's a, it's a fluke that Weidman won because either you feel foolish because your, your own, uh, 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 prognostication of the fight was wildly inaccurate or like you are still trying to cope with the idea that this guy that we put up on a pedestal could possibly get knocked out. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that if Weidman would have gone for the heel hook and then gotten beaten, we would have chalked up to his inexperience, uh, and which would have been a, a narrative we were ready to go with it to begin with. I, I think the thing with uh, the way Anderson Silva lost is that when you get knocked out like immediately, immediately after fucking around. It's hard for us not to be like, well, you fucked around and then got knocked out. Right. Uh, one led to the other. You know, if he had fucked around earlier in the fight and then had been taking it seriously at the moment of the knockout, maybe it wouldn't have appeared. But it was just like this immediate consequences of fucking around too much. Yeah, and it looks bad when that happens. And so I understand some of the backlash against Anderson Silva. But like I said, I mean, I think that was his game plan. I think that was his strategy. I think he knew Chris Weidman was inexperienced and he wanted to sort of bait him into attacking him so he could knock him out. So in my mind, that's just a really bad game plan. Yeah, that's, see, that's almost the... like I would I would say very comparable to what Fedor did against Dan Henderson. Like Fedor came out with just the worst possible game plan that you could have in a fight with Dan Henderson, and that was to turn it into a wild slugfest, which is essentially the only way Dan Henderson is going to defeat you if you're Fedor. So basically, he served it up to him on the on a platter. And Anderson Silva, what he did against Chris Weidman, obviously looks a lot worse, because when you look at it, you're like, oh, he's just fucking around. But really, I mean, I think that's his game plan. And I think that his game plan in this case was just terrible. And if they fight again, he probably will use a different strategy. And therefore, the outcome may well be different. Well, two things on that. One... I think Fedor's game plan, while still ill-advised, I'd rather lose that way. I'd rather lose trying to go out there and, and hurt the other dude because, hey, even if you, you know, maybe threw strategy out the window too much and, and played right into a, a style that Dan Henderson excels at, you know, at least you were charging right after the guy and trying to hurt him. If you do the thing where you're like, where your whole strategy is to, play around and show that you can do whatever you want and then you get knocked out before you actually get a chance to do anything i feel like that looks way worse for you like at least you know get knocked out trying to do something rather than intentionally trying to do nothing but get that guy to do something sure um, and, and that may well end up being a lesson learned from yeah. the greatest fighter of all time the other thing is the if they fight again portion of that statement uh i mean gotta fight again right It'd be yeah, you got, just you, a crime if they don't fight again. I guess, yeah. I mean, you have to fight. I mean, I guess the, 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 the way I can justify it is that if a, if a guy who uh, admittedly is a two-to-one underdog, and, and even though a lot of people, including myself, spent a long time trying to warn everyone that he had a, a good chance of winning, uh, when, it, when an underdog like that defeats this longtime champion and, and a guy who is unquestionably the greatest fighter in the history of the sport... I think you got to have a rematch. Well, especially if he beats him by the other dude fucking around, because as you said, I don't agree with that. I think 
Anderson Silva goes out there, he has a shitty game plan, he gets knocked the fuck out. He doesn't deserve a rematch. Chris Weidman needs a rematch probably more than Anderson Silva does Absolutely. because he needs to prove that he can beat the guy to people who want to dismiss this victory, uh, which I'm not one of those people. I've already seen enough. I mean, I'll watch him fight again because... I'll watch Anderson Silva fight and I'll watch Chris Weidman fight. And if they determine that them fighting again is the best thing to do, I don't really have a problem with that. But I mean, I don't know that Anderson Silva deserves a rematch for any other reason than the fact that he's the greatest fighter of all time and has been the middleweight champion for a long time. And frankly, to use that to justify the rematch, I'm fine with it. I just don't want to justify the rematch by what happened in the fight because I thought it was pretty goddamn decisive. Well, that is why he deserves a rematch is because he's Anderson Silva and because he's what, what he's done. That's why he was guaranteed the rematch before the fight even happened. But I think whoa, that... Whoa, conspiracy? I think that from a practical standpoint, especially if you're the UFC trying to make some damn money in this bitch, sure. uh, you, if you can sell it based on the, hey... This guy didn't take this dude seriously enough. He assumed that he was just a, a paler Stefan Bonner uh, and that he could go out there and clown around and then got knocked out. But this time, God damn it, he's had enough and he's going to go in there and, and he's all business this time. I mean, that's a great, easy, automatic angle uh, for the rematch. The rematch would do huge numbers. It would make a bunch of money for both Anderson Silva and Chris Weidman and, of course, for the UFC. One of the reasons why I think Anderson Silva is going to be convinced to do it, uh, even though, you know, he right afterwards acted like uh, the weirdest combination of I'm done fighting for the belt, but I'm not going to retire. I'm going to fulfill my 10 fight contract and never fighting for the belt again. Um, but even by the time he showed up to the, the press conference, that, that had already softened. Uh, well, I'll take some time. I think he does take some time, both from like a, just a competitive standpoint and from a, uh, I like money standpoint. Uh, he's going to be convinced to do that fight. I mean, if, if that fight doesn't happen, uh, it'll be a damn travesty for the UFC. Yeah, no, they'll definitely do it because they're, like you said, they're going to make a shitload of money. And, and we all know that stuff that guys say in the cage immediately after they lose, uh, might as well come with a surgeon general's warning or something about <laughs> how it's bullshit. Uh, I think we will probably talk more about the implications of a rematch and just exactly how badly Chris Weidman fucked up the UFC's plans by knocking out Anderson Silva in round number two. First, though, Sir Nigel Longstock's here at long last. It's been a, 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 a forever and a day since we saw his smiling face, uh, and he's going to lead us in a rendition of Master Tweet Theater, which starts right now. Now it's that time again. After a lengthy hiatus, we welcome back to the show noted theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am tan and rested. That's what you consider tan, huh? All over my body, every inch tan. All right. Well, there's a, an image for everyone. Those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel will read us off some tweets from some various people in the MMA sphere. Chad and I will try and guess who the tweeters in question are. Uh, and Sir Nigel will say something that'll make us all uncomfortable, uh, even more so than he just did. So, Sir Nigel, whenever you're ready. <clears throat> Very good. Let us begin. <clears throat> Tweet the first. My life is like a box of chocolate, except some of the pieces are filled with shit. Lol. Really, really wanted the W. Yeah, I know that one, unfortunately. You do? Yes. Oh, okay. You want to just say it then? Yes, that is, uh... 
Christian Cyrus Lieben, also known as the Crippler. <laughs> okay, I guess you sound pretty confident. I saw it on Twitter earlier. All right. Sir Nigel? It is, in fact, Christian Cyrus Lieben in a what I can only call a poignant tweet. A heart-rending tweet by C.C. Lieben. That actually makes me think that maybe Chris Lieben has more self-awareness than I had previously given him credit for. Well, yeah, at least it seems like he's taking the loss okay. He's cracking jokes about it. Yeah. Lol, he says. Yeah, there's an LOL in there and everything. He also recently assured us via tweet that he would not be relapsing. So, good news from C. Cyrus Lieben. (laughs) Also, is that what you're doing? You're just, you're reading LOLs as lol? Lol. That's how it's pronounced. I lolled. I literally lolled. That's unhelpful. All right, go on. Lol. Tweet the second. Uh, I'm going to give you a clue on this tweet. It was tweeted in the afternoon of July 5th. Happy to meet the legendary man, Mike Tyson. And then a photograph of the tweeter in question with Mike Tyson. What the fuck is this, man? Happy to meet the legendary man, Mike Tyson. I think I got a line on this one, but I'm not sure. Let's hear your line. Well... Because of the the hint, I am going to guess, well, not only the hint, but the hint and the sort of broken English, I'm going to go with eventual loser that night, former middleweight champion, Anderson Silva. That's a pretty good one. Uh, I know Usher was there. Does Usher count as someone in the MMA sphere? You would have to ask Sir Nigel that. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think your guess is actually pretty good now that I hear it. Um I'm going to go Frankie Edgar, just because. Interesting. You think Frankie Edgar would tweet, happy to meet the legendary man? Why not? All right. I think I think you're wrong, but let's Well, go. I would really love to say Usher, but I can't now, can I? <laughs> Both fine guesses, each grounded in its way in logic or disappointment at not being able to guess Usher. Only one correct! It is, in fact, Anderson Silva, happy to meet Mike Tyson just before he is banished to the land of wind and ghosts. Two for two. You're feeling pretty pretty good about yourself now, aren't you? Looking all smug and shit. I gotta take these Master Tweet Theater wins when I can get them. Well, it's not over yet. No, you could bounce back and go three in a row to win the non-existent competition between us. (laughs) A lot of people have said that Ben Folks is often clowning during Master Tweet Theater. It's only a matter of time before he gets caught. Tweet the third. Anderson Silva did not throw that fight. If he'd wanted to throw it, he would have just tapped on a leg lock. Throwing it is ridiculous. Josh Barnett. Interesting. I'm going to guess Ed Soares because I, I know that he said that at some point. I don't know if he tweeted it, and I don't even know if he's on Twitter, but uh, I'm going to guess. He's on Twitter. Okay. Ed Blackhouse? Yes. It is Josh Barnett. And Boom. Guessed wow. with great confidence. Shit. Yeah, I, because I knew. Because I just fucking knew it. That's why. Wait, w- w- because you saw it or because it was leg lock related? <laughs> well, I probably could have guessed it based on the leg lock, but I saw it. Okay. Also, so you're, you're cheating then, in other words. How- how did you guess the Christian Cyrus Lieben one again? I refuse to answer. Play, roll back the tape. Roll it back. This is on tape, right? We don't have that technology. <laughs> we lack the technology and the short-term memory. Tweet the fourth. This is why the death penalty should be used 1,000 times as much as it is now, and torture by the family members of victims should be legalized. 
Whoa. Hold on. What Do we have any idea what the this is referring to? No, we do not. Do we not have that information because you didn't do the proper research on it? I assure you, we looked for a long time <laughs> to see what would encourage the tweeter in question to multiply the death penalty by 1,000 times, allowing Texas, for example, to execute 360,000 people this year. Uh, not to step on your style, Ben, but I'm going to go War Machine here. Okay. Okay. Well, and, and if you are correct on that, I'm going to take credit because I'm the one who was telling you to follow War Machine's Twitter, which is delightful. I still haven't done that, though. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to say, because I think with we can break this down into one or two categories. It's either somebody crazy like War Machine right. or somebody extremely right-wing like Pat Militich. That's what I'm going to say. Well, that seems crazy, even for Pat Militech. Right? I know, I know, but you already took War Machine. Okay, good point. Both fine guesses, both grounded in the psychology of the individual, and both wrong. Ah. It is, in fact, Sean Big Fascist McCorkle. <laughs> what? Oh, okay, well, whatever. Big Sexy McCorkle demanding more executions and some torture. Well, I guess. I guess. Yeah, all right. Why not, right? <laughs> Tweet the fifth. Motherfuckers, don't call my wife. You don't watch me train. Don't watch me spar. Don't corner me. I think you suck. You should retire. I'm calling your wife. What is that? <laughs> That's insane. What is what? That is one tweet with you as the letter U, I presume, to make room for more expletives. Wait, when was this tweeted out? This was approximately two weeks ago. I mean, I have a guess. I think it's the obvious one. Uh, but I, I do also want to say that I think that might be my favorite master tweet, theater tweet ever. <laughs> yeah, can we hear it one yeah, more time? Read it one more time. <clears throat> Motherfuckers, don't call my wife. You don't watch me train. Don't watch me spar. Don't corner me. I think you suck. You should retire. I'm calling your wife. <laughs> <laughs> It's the I'm That's calling gotta your be wife. the poet Philip Baroni. It's, it's gotta be. It's the I'm calling your wife. That's that really <laughs> makes it. I think. Uh, yeah, I'm going poet Philip Baroni here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that just that makes sense, doesn't it? Who it called is, his wife? It is whom but the poet, and who would call his wife? You know, it's a mistake. <laughs> you shall be tweeted if you call the poet's wife. Well, and then he'll call your wife, and who knows what happens after that? So that wasn't directed at anyone; it was just tweeted. I assume he had someone in mind, but no, no one was mentioned in the tweet. Interesting. Okay. Well, I think this has been both an informative and kind of emotionally scarring Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, thank you, I guess, for that. Uh, what do you got going on? Well, it's funny you should ask, sir. I have just entered preliminary shooting for the sequel to Uncle Tom's Cabin, Uncle Tom's Bulletproof Rocket Truck. Yes, I see. And what role do you play? I play the truck, sir. <laughs> That was Sir Nigel Longstock, and that was Master Tweet Theater. Chad, before UFC 162, we couldn't stop talking, and by we, I mean just the MMA world in general, 
about Anderson Silva's super fight future. Was it going to be George St. Pierre? Was it going to be John Jones? Instead, he goes out there, does the stanky leg, gets knocked out, uh, and now kind of seems like maybe no super fights in the immediate future since Anderson Silva was the link to all of those. So basically, how much stuff did Chris Weidman just fuck up with one left hook? Well, obviously, this is all guesswork, but it seems like a lot. A lot of stuff. Because, uh, well, here, let me say this. I think the moment that we all probably should have known that Chris Weidman was going to win this fight was the moment that they showed Roy Jones Jr. at cage side (laughs) in the crowd on the UFC broadcast. Because that should have made us feel like... Has the UFC no respect at all for the MMA gods? Spitting in the face of the MMA gods. Right after Anderson Silva spends pretty much this whole week talking about how he wants to fight Roy Jones Jr. more than anyone else. Lo and behold, there he is. Shows up at cage side. Like, do you really think that shit is going to work, UFC? Like, have you you ever witnessed the spiteful power of the MMA gods? You think that they're going to stand idly by and just let you pull that shit off? The MMA gods will not be mocked. Sometimes I just don't know, man. And on top of that, you got this thing where during the pay-per-view broadcast, they sort of teased this major announcement about George St. Pierre uh, almost, you know, offhandedly while they showed George St. Pierre in the crowd. They're like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, major announcement about the future of George St. Pierre coming up after the pay-per-view. And then we find out that he's just been confirmed that, yeah, he's going to fight. Johnny Hendricks at UFC 167 or whatever. Which we've known for weeks. Right. So you got to think maybe that there was something else going on with that. Uh, I guess the, the most recent John Jones fight, Dana White teased us saying Anderson Silva had called him and asked for a, a super fight, but wouldn't tell us which one it was. So clearly you had George St. Pierre floating around. You had uh, John Jones floating around. You had Roy Jones Jr. floating around. Um, and I think all of those fights lose a tremendous amount of their luster by the fact that uh, the dude that they wanted to put in against each one of those guys gets knocked unconscious. Now, does this ruin Anderson Silva's marketability and, and ruin the, the future of all of those super fights? I'm not 100% sure. I feel like they could still do almost anything that they want with Anderson Silva. Because, uh, I mean, he's still the greatest of all time. Like, like we said during round one, there's still a bunch of people trying to explain this one away and basically make excuses for it. So I think if they wanted him to uh, fight Roy Jones Jr., fuck, man, why the hell not? Do it anyway. I mean, to me, it doesn't doesn't particularly destroy that fight that Anderson Silva lost to Chris Weidman. Well, you know, I'm going to say that I think it is a good thing that we at least put some of this super fight stuff with with John Jones and George St. Pierre on hold because of this fight. Um, I mean, for one thing, from the UFC's perspective, it's not – too bad because, yeah, sure, maybe you lost that stuff, but you replaced it with a rematch that's going to do, uh, you know, big numbers, uh, assuming that you can actually put it together. And then finally, fine, let's let these other dudes in the, in welterweight and light heavyweight concentrate on being the champions, the champs of those divisions. I think that that's a good thing. I, I, I mean, I feel like the super fight stuff had gotten really annoying, especially because so much more talking happens than, than fighting, uh, when it comes to that topic. Uh, and because I can totally understand why champions, especially the smaller champion being asked to fight the bigger one, would feel like, well, fuck, man, I became the, the welterweight champion because I wanted to fight welterweights. I wanted to fight guys my size. That's a completely reasonable position. So I think that, if anything, maybe it'll help our focus in that regard. George St. Pierre can, can focus on dealing with guys like Johnny Hendricks. Uh, John Jones can fight Lusty Gusty, uh, Alexander Gustafson. Uh, and... 
I, I think that that's, that's perfectly fine. I, maybe people will be a little bit more understanding of that and, and stop looking to some kind of like hypothetical future as a result. Yeah. No, I second that emotion, especially about the talk. I mean, here we are six and a half months into the year of the super fight, by the way. Year, year of, of the, the super, super fight. fight. That was good. We totally nailed that. Year of the super fight is 2013. <laughs> and so far we've seen what? Uh, Frankie Edgar versus Jose Aldo, which I guess sort of counts, even though Frankie Edgar got chased down to featherweight by back-to-back losses, and now he's a full-time member of the 145-pound division. Uh, we saw George St. Pierre versus Nick Diaz, which I guess sort of counts, even though Nick no. Diaz wasn't even really the linear strike force champion uh, this year. Uh, have we, I, I guess, have we seen any super fights? Has there been one damn super fight this year? No, not really. Man, the year of the super fight is totally laying an egg so far. No, you're, I, so, yeah, I think you're right. I think we would probably be better off if we would just forget all of this nonsense about a super fight or any super fight and just sort of go back to how things were in the, in the glory days when guys would just fight inside their weight class and we all thought that that was awesome. Although, you know, we're just a couple of wins away now from that, a big Johnny Hendricks, Chris Weidman, Alexander Gustafson uh, super fight uh, <laughs> round robin tournament that we've all been been begging for. Wow, you think the, the MMA gods must be pissed if they're going to make all that happen? <laughs> well, what will appease them, Ben? What will appease them? <laughs> well, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about that maybe we didn't get to in round one is uh, before this fight, we had a lot of discussion about legacy with Anderson Silva. You know, now he's thirty eight years old. He he, he loses. In, at least in part due to fucking around, whether you agree that that is just a misguided game plan or uh, just total hubris on his part. Now, he's getting to that point where whatever he does, whatever happens from this point out, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, if he retires fairly quickly, if he comes back and fights Chris Weidman in the rematch, uh, and especially if the rematch takes, you know, six months or something to put together and he gets beaten that one, you know, that also wouldn't surprise me. Uh, you know, now do we do we decide what we think about Anderson Silva's legacy based on what's happened up to this point? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that he's the greatest of all time and it's it's hard for me to imagine a scenario by which that is taken away from him. Like I don't think that 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 you can undo all of the great things that he's done in the UFC up to this point. I mean, his 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 records are are crazy. There it's uh consistency and a kind of longevity that, that we've really never seen before in this sport, which is, you know, so often so crazy and there's so many goddamn ways to lose and you have to be so good at so many different things that that I really think that uh the legacy of what he's done in the UFC stands up at this point, making him pretty much the consensus greatest of all time. I don't think that there's anything that they can take that away from him unless John Jones, you know, fulfills all of this potential that we're constantly talking about with him uh, and goes on to have a, a similar run and a similar career or, or even exceed what Anderson Silva's done. Then, then you might have a debate about greatest of all time. But to me, like, he could lose two more fights in a row and, and still be the greatest of all time. I don't really think that, that – You're not even going to talk about Chris Weidman in that greatest of all time. He beat the man, Chad. Yeah, but he I mean, beat the man, yeah, and yeah, and and and. But and, see, this is I, a, and I'm into that. But I mean, in terms of greatest of all time, shit, man. You well, gotta talk to me in five years, okay? Well, see, that's the thing with Chris Weidman now as the champion is, even though I think we all knew that Chris Weidman was a good athlete, good good fighter, uh, a real risk, a real danger to Anderson Silva, and then he goes out there and knocks him out. Doesn't it still kind of feel like you know? 
Chris Weidman is one of your parents' friends' son who they keep telling you they think you'd be friends with and you should really hang out with him. And you're like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing objectionable about him, but I still just don't want to have a beer with the guy. Like, it just seems like he seems kind of bland still. Like, people just, you know, they're not really sure what this dude's deal is yet. Yeah, I think marketability with him is probably going to be an issue for a while because he's the kind of guy that I, as a fan, always really liked. You know, just kind of a hard-nosed, no-nonsense wrestler guy. That's your, that's I, your guys. We all know that. I understand that uh, that that that's not necessarily what sells pay-per-views to the masses. I think doing matrix kicks is, is more successful on that. And, and, and you're right. Weidman doesn't have a tremendous amount of sizzle going on with him. And he's still, even though he beat Anderson Silva and you hate to fall back on the cliche, but styles do make fights. And just because Chris Weidman had a kind of a nightmare style for Anderson Silva doesn't mean that he's going to be like, this long serving, long standing champion. He's still a dude who only has 10 fights now and is another one of these guys that has risen really, really high and really, really fast. And I believe that the kid has serious, serious skills, but he's still at a point where like, we don't really know how good he is yet. Yeah. You think Chael Sonnen's sitting around going, maybe yes. I could make 185 again. Yes. <laughs> I think every middleweight in the world woke up on Sunday morning and was just like, man, where's my phone? I'm going to text Joe Silva. <laughs> We know Vitor did. He sent yeah. 500 text messages to Dana White. And that's the thing. Like, maybe Vitor and Chris Weidman fight and Vitor knocks him out. I don't know. That could happen. And then we're pretty much right back to where we started. But uh, I like Chris Weidman. I hope that the kid has a great career and, and, and is able to hold on to the belt for a long time. We don't want to see a, a a replay of the shit that happened at light heavyweight when, when Chuck Liddell lost the belt where they just – basically gave it to everybody in the division, let him take it home for one night. Who knows? Maybe Chris Levin gets in there and roughnecks him. Exactly. Yes. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> anyway, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will roll on into round number three. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? My Are You Fucking Kidding Me is on the same subject, but it's kind of two-pronged. Okay. Um, so it's two different Are You Fucking Kidding Me's, at least in tone. Uh, Chad, I assume by now you've seen the photo of Misha Tate taken for ESPN's ESPN Magazine's The Body Issue. Nope. Haven't seen it. You work for ESPN, and you haven't seen the photo. No, I've seen it. I just... Of course you've seen it. My wife's upstairs. Okay, all right, all right. Well, we'll keep it down. Um, anyway, for those of you who haven't seen it, check it out. Maybe Chad will post a link or something uh, on the website. Um, but come on, you're all a bunch of pervs. I assume you, you sought it out and you've seen it. Um, so I say, two are you fucking kidding me's to this photo of Misha Tate naked, uh, but for a pair of hand wraps jumping on the beach. The first one, are you fucking kidding me, ESPN? Why does every female fighter have to be naked in a pair of hand wraps? That's just weird. I mean, I guess you want to identify for us that, that they're a fighter, that that's their sport because you don't trust people to know who the hell they are. But hand wraps, I just, it really destroys the suspension of disbelief for me to think that you're going to get totally naked and then realize you still have your hand wraps on. That's weird. You fucking kidding me with that. But mostly, are you fucking kidding me? Look at Misha Tate. Damn, she looks good. You fucking kidding fucking me, Misha kidding. Tate? You know, go on, girl. Hand wrap porn is one of the big emerging <laughs> metrics. Yeah, this year. Yeah, it's going to be huge. Yeah, is that? I think actually, weren't you telling me that that's how um, most people get to our website is by yes, Google searches Google hand wrap porn. porn yeah. Ben Folks, and then our <laughs> website comes up. Ben, uh, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? Goes out to all the people who took some kind of issue with female referee Kim Winslow refereeing the heavyweight fight between Dave Herman and Gabriel Gonzaga at UFC 162. 
you wonder why I sometimes say that the way this sport acts about women, women's MMA and women in the sport in general is super embarrassing. It's because of stuff like this. You don't see a bunch of dudes going online and freaking out when tiny ass Eve Levine gets assigned to ref a heavyweight <laughs> fight, do you? You don't see a bunch of dudes talking about how it's bullshit when that tiny ass little referee who's covered in tattoos and buttons his polo shirt up to his neck and he looks like the criminal little brother of the lead singer from the Mighty Mighty Bostones. Nobody says <laughs> shit about that. And I got news for you, people. Neither of those fucking guys could stop a UFC heavyweight from doing anything he wanted to do. And that goes double for Mario. Yamasaki and for the Maz. So please, let's try to be bigger than the stereotype and make a point in the future to not make ourselves look like fucking Don Draper driving around in a 62 <laughs> Buick complaining about his wife. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? You know, and the thing about that is, I didn't think that that stoppage was bad, but then you have in the Cub Swanson Dennis Seaver fight where. Cub Swanson has to punch Dennis Seaver until Herb Dean is tired of seeing it and then he just kind of gives him a look like, Man, what's your problem, Herb? Are you are you sick or something? You know, that's more of a danger. Not that the guy will be physically, that the ref will be physically unable to stop the fight, but that they just won't. Yeah, to like make some discussion about the physicality of a ref is to totally uh, misunderstand why the ref is there, right? Like, <laughs> dude has to respect the ref because he's in there to uh, enforce the rules, not because he's got guns like like Mergliata. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, uh, well, that's gonna do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, I think we all sort of knew that this time was coming, that we would face this day at some point, as it refers to the career of Chris Lieben. Uh, but at this point, in the wake of his loss to Andrew Craig over the weekend, a fighter who I guess is not an infielder for the St. Louis Cardinals. That's, who knew? That's Alan Craig. Who I knew? Guess. I was confused all weekend. Uh, it, it definitely is starting to feel like We've seen the best days of Chris Lieben and they, they are now in the rearview mirror, uh, particularly when you bust off these sort of sad quotes from Dana White. And uh, here's one. Dana White said, I want Lieben to get up every day and be part of society and have something to do, whether it's training or training other people, no matter what it is. Chris Lieben has the type of personality that he can go off the deep end very easily in a lot of negative ways. I really care about the kid. I like him a lot. I love him. So I've got to figure out, I've got to figure this thing out. When you start to hear cutthroat businessman Dana White say stuff like that about Chris Th Lieben. That he mainly hopes you remain a member of society. Yeah, that seems like a sad future, doesn't it? And what, how would Chris Lieben cease to be a member of society? Let's just imagine that for a second if we could. I mean, I don't know that it's, that we can't imagine a scenario by which Chris Lieben throws his grid. hair out and, and jumps off the grid and is living somewhere in, in New Mexico at one of those weird like RV resorts where it's just a bunch of uh, concrete pads and old people park their airstreams out there. That, Lieben maybe is the guy that sells everybody weed. That actually doesn't sound like a bad life. I'm going to pitch that show to FX now that <laughs> I think about it because that seems like it's got legs to me. Uh, I, I want to read this other quote from Dana White about Chris Lieben too before we get heavy into this. Uh, this one I feel like 
maybe ironic. His fighting style isn't healthy for him, the way he fights, Dana White said. He's getting up there in age, and the big layoffs don't help him either. I don't know. I've got to figure out what to do. I've got to figure out what I think will be best for him, which people hate when I say that and do that. Now, I know we're we're here to talk mostly about Chris Lieben, but don't you think it's a little bit ironic when the, the president of the company that actively incentivizes and encourages guys to fight like Chris Lieben is suddenly like, oh, yeah, this fighting style isn't healthy for him. He needs to do something else with his life. Because to me, it's like, man, you essentially offer $50,000 bonuses for dudes that go out there and do that. Yeah, I would think that Dana White's argument to that would be that you're not necessarily saying everybody has to fight like Chris Lieben or that like – you know, that that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, maybe if you substitute the word like healthy for like some term about longevity, uh, then I think it might be a little more palatable, at least to people like us. That, and, and I mean, that's something I think we all know to be true. When you, when you fight like Chris Lieben and one of the reasons Chris Lieben has held on recently, even though uh, his record has not been great of late is that, you know, he is going to give you a certain type of show and it's a type of show that fight promoters like because fans like it. Uh, but it's not the type of strategy that leads you to have a really long career. And even if you, the thing is though, even if you have a really long career in this sport, it's still not a long career, you know, for a, for a human. Uh, you can't do this job when you're 50, even if you're like, you know, the most, uh, careful and successful guy at it. It's, you just don't get to do that. Uh, so, I mean, in that situation, his, his, it's not so different from anything that any other fighter faces. It's just that with Chris Lieben, I think especially because he was in among that tough one, uh, cast where Dana White feels some kind of like protective fatherly urge over them. And now he's getting this point, but yeah, he's not quite at that superstar level where it would, you, the UFC would be able to justify just putting him on the payroll and pretending he's doing a job or would they? Well, maybe. I don't know. I mean, do you think that fans will continue to to want to watch Lieben fight? Because for me, and granted, I'm I'm not the average fan, but for me, watching him fight like takes on this weird air of inevitability where once you realize he's not landing that that big Mack truck left hand that he's got, you start to feel this like sinking feeling of like, oh, God, he's he's not going to win this. He's just going to get punched and kneed in the face a thousand times and he's just going to keep coming forward with that same attack and it's not going to work like i'm not sure that 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 holds a lot of of marketability does it or or would like fans that are going to be swayed one way or another on a pay-per-view by the inclusion of chris lieben not going to know one way or the other you know i think the last two fights especially if you look at them it was not too fun to watch and this one uh, you know, the, the Derek Brunson one, it was like, okay, well, he's coming off a long layoff and, and all the personal problems that he had. So we expected him to be in kind of terrible shape. And this one, it was like, well, he's turning it around. You know, he changed camps. He's in great shape. And then he gets in there and it's the same old Lieben. Uh, and people are ready for same old Lieben at this point. You know, you're not really surprising anybody with that. You, you're not going to win against too many solid guys in the UFC with foot stomps and that, you know, head down looping left hand. People are just, they're, they're too tuned into that from Chris Lieben at this point. Um, so you got to wonder what would his future look like if he did stick around? I mean, I don't think that there's a whole lot of wins left in the can and left, unless you just match him up against dudes who are there only to lose to Chris Lieben. Right. And he's already fought Vanderlei Silva. So, (laughs) 
And is Lieben one of these dudes that keeps fighting if he gets cut by the UFC too? Because we had a guy, I think somebody hit us up on Twitter this week. I can't remember if it was Twitter or if they emailed us a question. And the question was, who's going to be the last member of Tough One left standing and still fighting? And the guys who are out there still are, are Diego Sanchez, Chris Lieben, Josh Koscheck, and uh, Mike Swick. And I looked at the list and I was like, well, probably Lieben. And that makes me sad because Sanchez has had injuries. Mike Swick has had injuries. And Koscheck is just a dude that he's not going to be in this for the long haul. He's, he's already starting to branch off into other, other stuff that he hopes he can make money with. So like my great fear about Chris Lieben, and maybe this is Dana White's great fear too, is like if his UFC fighting career ends, he becomes this guy who like knocks out tomato cans on the, on the, uh, independent circuit until he gets too old to even do that. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess, uh, my question would be if you're, if you're fighting on the undercard in XFC, does that count as a member of society? Are you, <laughs> are you still in society at that point? I think I'd have to take that on a case by case basis because <laughs> there might, there might be some exceptions, but then, then there might also be some, some mechanical engineers. Who knows? I don't know. What if he's fighting for 10 grand in somebody's backyard? We could probably scrape together the dough. You know, we could get him in Hill FC in your backyard, fight on the slope, the most unforgiving uh, terrain in mixed martial arts, <laughs> the most unforgiving circus or surface. I mean, I don't, I don't want to circus. Th- that was a Freudian slip. It's, <laughs> we run a quality professional show. I don't, I don't want to say it's the future of MMA, but I mean, it, it, it is. <laughs> but yeah, no, you, you, I think you raise a valid point. Like, I think Chris Lieben is a guy. You talk about guys who who don't live up to their potential, right? Maybe BJ Penn being the poster child of, of, of guys that we always felt like could have done more. Isn't Lieben a dude who has just fucking vastly exceeded what his mere physical abilities would, would, would indicate that he would do? He's a dude that like has been pretty one dimensional his entire career, although he did start out as, as a more of a jujitsu guy until he learned how fun it was to knock people out and that he might have been even better at that than, than the ground game. But like he's been a dude who has had the same sort of one dimensional, almost plodding offense his entire UFC career and has been almost unimaginably successful with it, right? Yeah, you know, I mentioned that in a tweet during the fight. We're looking at him and you think it's hard to imagine another guy in the UFC who has changed so little over, you know, a pretty long stay in the UFC um, and yet had a pretty decent amount of success despite not really evolving that much, not really mixing it up. I mean, you look at maybe like his fight with uh, Yoshihiro Akiyama as like the pinnacle of when he seemed to be doing the best. I mean, stringing together a couple wins and showing a, a variety of techniques. Um, but like his fight with Aaron Simpson, uh, I remember talking to uh, Trevor Whitman right after that one, and he was saying, man, you look at that one on paper and you don't see any way Lieben wins that fight, really. Uh, and, but then, you know, just by... That, that part of Lieben, that just hard-headedness going out there and just doing it. I mean, he's gotten farther than you would have expected just based on that. Much farther. I was actually in the house for Chris Lieben's last independent circuit fight before he went on the Ultimate Fighter. I was at Sport Fight when he fought Benji Raddick in the main event. Uh, 
on June 26, 2004, according to Wikipedia. And Chris Lieben should have lost that fight. Like Benji <laughs> Raddick beat his ass for three rounds. Like just swept him off his feet like a newlywed. Every time they rang the bell and, and, and held him down and was just punishing him with ground and pound. And, and right towards the end of the third round, uh, Lieben got what I can only describe as a hometown stand-up because we were in Portland. Uh, the referee stood him up. By Portland, you mean Gresham. Yeah, I know we were in Gresham. Uh, uh, at the uh, God, what are they? Mount Hood Community Mount Hood College. Community College. Yeah. That's where we were. Uh, Lieben got this stand up, and you could just see him. He just put his head down and rushed Benji Raddick into the ropes and started throwing hillbilly haymakers until Benji Raddick was dead and <laughs> broke Benji Raddick's jaw. And Benji Raddick fell on the mat, and blood, just like a full cup of blood, poured out of Benji Raddick's mouth all over Chris Lieben's side. It's one of the grossest things I've ever seen at a fight. And then you know. A few months later, the guy's on the Ultimate Fighter. So that's just, I guess, the kind of career that he's had, winning fights that he shouldn't win. And I like Chris Lee, but I hope that uh, I hope that he finds some way to remain a productive member of society, as Dana White says. But uh, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Jed, I'm just saying that when I was in Las Vegas for UFC 162, I took a stroll through the UFC Fan Expo at the Mandalay Bay. Um, that sounds delightful. You know, and I remember, I think, when they did the first fan expo in Vegas, and it was just this claustrophobic mess of a ton of people packed in, and pretty much every clothing or clothing company or magazine or nutritional supplement sponsor you'd ever heard of all packed in there. Um, and it was kind of crazy. And I went to this one. Uh, good news, not nearly so claustrophobic. Um, also, starting to look a little ragged around the edges in some ways. Uh, not as many booths, it seemed. Not as many known uh, companies there. Uh, part of it, I hear, was that they, they upped the price for uh, exhibitors. And then when they couldn't get them all, then started uh, discounting them to get some people in there. Uh, and it included, when I walked through there, somebody smelling, selling smartphone accessories, uh, e-cigarettes, Metallica memorabilia. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, well, now you just piqued my interest. I'm just saying, at this point, it seems like the coolest thing about the UFC Fan Expo, I mean, I guess if you like autographs and hearing Bruce Buffer tell bad beat poker stories, which he absolutely was, uh, the coolest thing about it seems to be Grappler's Quest uh, and the wrestling tournament. I mean, not only I knew a bunch of guys who went and did Grappler's Quest, stopped by the mats and happened to just, just by walking by, saw uh, Scott Jorgensen uh, and... Uh, no, I can't remember. John Dodson uh, going at it. You know, that kind of stuff is cool to see. Um, I'm just saying maybe that should be more of the push and less on, you know, guys will be standing around taking fist pose photographs that you'll basically have to pay $40 and stand in a 30-minute line for. I'm just saying. Just saying. Ben, this week, I'm just saying that aside from the sheer fact that Chris Weidman's win over Anderson Silva once again underlines the fact that motherfuckers ought to be listening to me when I'm dropping my fight picks, <laughs> uh, there's one aspect of it that I really appreciate, and that is the fact that I will no longer have to continue arguing with people about who is the number one pound-for-pound -pound fighter in the world, because guess what? On Friday night, it was John Jones, and when this podcast drops, it's still going to be John Jones. And all these people that were trying to hang on to this antiquated idea that Anderson Silva was still somehow number one pound for pound can no longer say shit to me. 
I'm just saying. Well, at least you're handling it graciously. Yeah, I feel like I'm really being a pro about it, don't you think? Yeah. Act like you've been there before. Man. I'm just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back next week to talk a bunch more shit about mixed martial arts. As for right now, that's going to do it for us. We're done. We're through. We're out. I mean, I feel like I did a pretty good job not gloating for most of the show. Yeah. Just threw a little gloat there on the end. Yeah, and by little you mean just egregious. Just egregious gloat. Yeah. You know, none of those people that said they were going to come on my Twitter account, I'm talking about what it means.